0: Welcome to the Starship Enterprise for the Inner Universe. My name is Patrici, and I'm an artist and designer forever studying the most elusive superpower we humans have, our creativity. My goal is to help myself and other curious souls travel beyond constant optimization and dig up our creative potential. What happens when we collectively venture into our inner worlds, when we master our minds beyond the pop culture to-do list for positive thinking, and embrace the depth of who we are? Come with me to find out. Hello, everybody. Happy Scorpio season. Um fitting because today we're going to talk about what 100% of you who voted on Instagram um, were interested in, which is anxiety and depression. And I'm going to give an energetic take on this. Um, And to do that, I'll do three things. I'm going to share my story of depression and anxiety. I'll Share how I reflect back on it from where I am now, having studied the scientific perspective in college and the spiritual side of it after college, and of course, having experienced it in general. And lastly, I will go into how energetically um, I still work with it, how it didn't actually quite disappear It just changed into a form that I now can work with and doesn't feel like it controls me. And so in part of this um, podcast, at the end probably, I'll share just a few examples of how I actively integrate more difficult emotions and feelings that come up, that feel old, feel like they're old feelings, um, and how I work with them. And as a secondary intention, I do hope that all the sharing helps to uplift and give hope to somebody out there since I know how much other people's stories have helped me in the past. And know that just by expressing my perspective, I am never denying or invalidating any other experiences or needs, just sharing my own. Have no interest in participating in suffering Olympics. And I truly believe only each person has the right to use sources of information that they personally want to hear and use to heal themselves. Because as you'll see in this story, that was what has really helped me being free to figure things out on my own, which obviously is not going to work for a lot of people, but I wanted to give you this take. So speaking of which, the last thing I want to add before I get started is even though I have had a whole couple of decades recovering and self-healing from symptoms that were definitely depressive and anxious, and even though I studied psychology graduated with a BA and spent a good chunk of my post-college life exploring spiritual and mental health, I'm still not a doctor. I am simply sharing this episode because I know you are a capable grown-up who has the power to change your own world however you choose. But I also know anxiety and depression are very sensitive topics, and rightfully so. I know how all of this is talked about, because I've been in these places. So yeah, having anxiety and depression is a sensitive place to be, but I trust that you are using your discernment when listening to this. And if you're not ready to do that, then don't listen to this. Um, Because I talk about the non-medicated path that I took, which is not recommended for anybody in different situations than me, um, but I wanted to share because this is my experience and it's been quite eye-opening for me. Um, And with that, um, let's get to it. So first things first, nope, I was never actually diagnosed with anxiety or depression and I was barely treated for it. Um, it was the 90s and early 2000s when I had it at its worst. Um, Zoloft had just come out. It was all over the commercials. And I would see it when I would watch, like, TJF on Fridays. And I really wanted to try it. But at the same time, something in me said to hold off. And I didn't really have the opportunity to ask either. Um, because you'll see in my story, I didn't really quite have anyone around me who knew what was going on. So as a kid, when you don't have people who notice that, then, you know, it's hard to get um, a hold of these things. So anyway, is my perspective even valid without having had any medical intervention or diagnosis? I know what my answer is to that question, but I'll let you decide if you want to um, say yes or no to that before you keep listening. But anyway, back to where it all came from. The answer is I don't really know. I was born with it. Um, I may have mentioned this in other episodes, but the core reason behind the suffering of anxiety and depression that I went through was me not talking. (laughs) I didn't talk for uh, probably the first 15 years of my life. And a lot of people thought I was fine, that I would grow out of it, and I was fairly normal with family. Um, But outside of that, what many people didn't know was that It was actually excruciating, agonizing. It was torturous for me to be around people. When I was made to talk in front of a person I didn't know, my heart rate and blood pressure would spike, and I can't say I had many panic attacks, but what was more common was that I felt like I was going to die if I spoke out loud. Um, I think just knowing that there was no way I could get what was in my head and heart to translate properly to another person was more than I could bear. It was just this intrinsic belief that I was born and raised with that nobody understood me so I shouldn't bother communicating. This kind of makes me theorize that it was partially ancestral, Um, maybe what my parents and grandparents might have gone through as immigrants, but, you know, I won't go too much into ancestral trauma today. But I did actually see a psychologist when I was in preschool, and it was very short-lived. I didn't see one consistently because no one could get me to talk enough to understand What was happening with me? Um, There is one vivid memory from the psychologist's appointment, though. My mom said that when they tried to communicate with dolls, I built a scene of dolls who were climbing over doors and gates and windows to look at the doll that was representing me. And to their credit, that was pretty accurate. That's how it felt like I had an exaggerated sense of everything and everyone around me. I was sensitive to every slight, every criticism, every comment made toward me was like my own personal 9-11, especially if it was like critical or, um, you know, kind of mean. And I know that sounds dramatic, but I just want to give you an example of how the anxiety felt, not that it was logical in any way. And because my only response was to hide and go more inward when I felt attacked, which was all the time, a lot of adults had no idea how to deal with it other than to punish and shame me even more for being weird or disobedient or being out of the ordinary which of course helped the anxiety persist and it paved the way for depression over time because it was so consistent but on the other hand no one cared about mental health back then really so who could really know no one could tell how i was actually feeling but i also participated in my own suffering because I was a kid who never asked for help, and yeah, I know that wasn't my fault, Um, but when I try to think about why, um, and if I'm honest, I was just a young person who had a core belief that the world was bleak, that I was an outcast, that I should hate everybody because I hated myself, and I really did, like, I didn't show it, but... The thought of asking for help could hardly occur to a person who was in that state. And maybe in some ways I liked being left alone too, even though it was very lonely because anyone trying to help me or connect with me usually meant being misunderstood and it wasn't worth it. So this is why unconscious beliefs, in my experience, can be so debilitating Because I literally didn't see that anybody would want to help. And I questioned motives at all times. I was always on alert. Underneath silent panics and that extremely socially anxious behavior, which I knew wasn't normal but was somewhat comfortable, underneath that was this huge cycle of shame and abysmal self-worth that, of course, I was completely unaware of. I was too afraid to go to anybody else because I didn't want to burden anybody else. The way I perceived my worth, my value, it was so low that I twisted my perception and idea of who I was to believe that I was doing everybody else a favor by hiding everything about me. I believed that nobody would appreciate or love me if I didn't just become this neutral, voiceless personality going through the motions, doing what I was supposed to do. And, you know, that hasn't even ended, but the worst of it went on for years. I would say I felt like this anguish consistently between probably when I was three all the way up to when I was 18, that's when it was the most debilitating, I would say. And I don't even remember a lot of my childhood or teenage years, probably because it was such a constant state of worthlessness that wasn't even painful, it was just numbed to be extremely normal. And like I said, on the inside, I don't think I would ever say this out loud, but On the inside, I continuously blamed everybody else for the perception they had of me and their unwillingness, from my perspective, to understand, um, and that kept me in by believing that Uh, somehow in that state, I still ended up being able to graduate with a pretty good GPA, um... But I would say that the only place I felt I could really do anything right was academically. And I think this is probably a big reason why people didn't think they needed to help me because I was still succeeding academically. And that, on a side note, tells you a lot about our society, right? Like, as long as somebody's functioning academically and as long as somebody is functioning in their job we think they're doing okay because they're being a productive member of society. And this is actually what I studied in psychology, um, the infamous DSM codex of psychological disorders. Um, It says in assessing what disorders people might have, um, a serious condition is one that significantly interferes with major life activities, such as learning or working. And that's exactly how they put it. Um. So anyway, food for thought on how we culturally define mental health. So anyway, things got better for me once I made a conscious internal decision that I couldn't go on like that. I don't even remember if there was a rock bottom moment because there were probably a lot of them. Uh, Much of it was typical teenage stuff blown out of proportion like a gym partner making a comment about not wanting to be partnered with me, um, teachers yelling at me, or being extremely misunderstood by my own family who had their own things to deal with. And remember, literally nobody knew except for maybe some internet friends bless them, that I was feeling this low. So I wasn't getting any help at all. And it all piled together. And I could feel the emptiness and isolation creeping in to consume my soul. Um, And at that point, there was nothing I could indulge in, no shows or books that I could escape into. Um, No gaming addiction to help those are already started feeling really gross to me at that time, having an addiction. So if I could pick one rock bottom moment for this depression and anxiety, it would probably be when I was later in high school and had to think about functioning in the real world. Things were getting real, basically. Um, And I knew that I didn't have many friends So, even though academics had been where I felt like I could maybe survive life, um, it was looking like in college, social skills are going to be really important to survive academics. And I saw this vision of myself after high school. If I didn't change, I saw this vision of becoming a failure both socially and academically, for the first time. And I thought to myself, um, if that vision comes true, if I can't function in the world, and if the world doesn't change to accommodate me, because it wasn't, I was waiting for it to, um, I might as well just die, right? So I won't get too depressing about that train of thought, but it was a pretty low point to be. And the thought stayed there for quite a while because you just feel stuck when you can't change the world around you and it's so hard to change what you can do in that moment. It feels impossible, but I bided my time. I figured out step-by-step step what I could do, um, and I made lists of things to keep motivating me Um like waiting for the last Harry Potter book to come out which would be in when I was in college. So that motivated me to get to that goal. But in instead of figuring out this huge complex plan, I actually just started to make smaller moves. And I decided that no matter how nuclear my physiological reactions were in these anxious situations that I would get through it. So from that one strong decision, which I now see as an intention, things started to show up. I found books about anxiety that described me to a T so I could finally put words on these things that I was feeling. Um, And from that exploration, I learned about cognitive behavioral therapy And even though I was too scared to ask for a psychologist again, I figured out how to apply CBT to myself with small behavior changes. Um, One of the suggestions was screaming out loud in a subway full of people you don't know, but that was way too much for me. So I did small things like, you know, saying a random thing to the few real-life friends that I had. Um, I started to answer really short questions in class, and this was all very conscious. Like, I consciously raised my hand and knew the physiological reaction would come, but I would get through it and wouldn't die, and more and more um, after doing that, it would start to melt away. And the depression started to melt away because I was starting to, you know, move whatever things were being suppressed by the anxiety. And yes, when I did something uncomfortable, the physiological aftermath would happen. Um, But it, like I said, it became less and less. So by the time I got to college... I just had a normal amount of anxiety and realized that everybody had anxiety and didn't feel as alone. But that's another thing that I want to note because as I got better, I started to set new mind traps for myself. I guess I could call it that. Um, One example is when I was in college and, you know... Anxiety started to feel normal. I was taking art history and art classes and um, discovered this interesting new belief that I could be and should be proud of my suffering. That maybe it could be a badge of honor because all these great artists that I was learning about were depressed and neurotic. And that was really interesting because it kind of showed me like, oh, maybe you could just stay here because it'll make you a better artist. And yeah, I did try that. I really believed that. And, you know, it was <sighs> it contributed to a lot of unnecessary uh, anxiety and suffering, but it was helpful for a time. Um, but I also speculate that's why I continued to indulge in anxiety and anxious behaviors long past I I should have. But this is where the physiological learning and me understanding my physiological responses started to turn into spiritual learning. Um, When your mental state and emotions become your identity, this is something I I learned during that artist's Period, the artist stereotype period, when my mental state and emotions became kind of an identity, it became pretty tricky territory. And I totally get that in a depressed and anxious state, all you want is for someone to understand. And the first step of that is finding stories and other people who are suffering and content that speaks to you, Reddit threads, live journals, where Everyone's talking about being anxious. (laughs) And that's totally what I found. Um, And it was a beautiful thing, and it was very important for me to see that it was common as I recovered, because it's just supportive and healing to know that you're not alone. But after a time, I did also realize that it can also be debilitating, in different ways. Especially if the identity becomes an attachment and a way to continue externalizing inner issues rather than a place to safely build up the inner strength. And so I had to realize from these communities that I did build up my inner strength and it was time for me to let go. And yeah, I don't think these communities and cultures that exist to support people are not in the wrong or that they're in the wrong. I don't believe that. I believe they exist for a reason and that we should always be aware of timing and what is going on inside. So anyway, I guess this is a good segue into the reflection section of this episode. I say all of this with love because I've been through it all. Support groups, attachments, online communities, the works. Everyone has their own path and mine seemed to be learning self-responsibility. This may not be yours, but I'm sharing anyway in case it interests anybody. And I could easily just dismiss this whole story and say, oh, I just grew out of being depressed and anxious. But it was intense. And I feel like saying that I grew out of it diminishes all of the conscious decisions and work that I had to do along the way. And it also normalizes depression and anxiety as a phase, even if it's chronic which is not helpful. So along those lines, talking about it as if it's a phase prevents people from sharing their experiences as it has kind of prevented me from sharing. Um, And that sucks because it is good to share. It's good to help others feel less alone. Um, And even though this... Experience does feel like so long ago that I've moved on. It doesn't mean that I should buy into the thought that I don't truly know how it feels anymore and I'm no longer part of the club and have no right to discuss this because, you know, this goes back to the talk about um, making something a part of your identity, making an emotion your identity. If I bought into the thought that depression and anxiety were still my identity as an artist that it's a club that nobody outside of it understands it's a trap too and after deciding to open up to the world as a teenager yeah it was appropriate for me to do that at the time find a community because i wanted to find a place to belong and I learned a lot working in the arts um, and working in places where mental health is talked about freely, but I was also very careful that I didn't teeter into the cult-like territory of that. So, from my point of view, where I am now, these mental health diagnoses are not A human natural state. Yes, everybody has depression and anxiety nowadays, but for healing to happen as a culture, I do believe we need to stop believing in a paradigm that just because we're continuously traumatized by the world we live in, that it has to be a normal state of being for adults and children. And that the solution is to mess with our brain chemistry without coming to terms with the root trauma, whether it's a specific event or a culture, the, culture, the traumatizing culture that we live in. Uh, and I don't think that's dramatic to say. I think we live in this time and culture that we don't know is hurting us. I am, so this is a balanced hand-in-hand approach, spirituality and science together. Um, and again, this doesn't mean I think we should just all magically stop being depressed and anxious. Uh, what I'm saying is that as a society, we need to do better about understanding why these mental health issues are thriving in the first place. If our world is making us sick, why do we choose to live the way that we do? And this is a question for both the collective level as much as it is for the individual level. There is a great TED Talk by Johan Hari, I believe. I'll put it in the show notes. And he says if you have depression, you're not crazy. You're a human being with unmet needs. Same for anxiety. And yes, I do believe in many cases of depression and anxiety, even though they may stem from really difficult emotions and unmet needs, there is a choice available. I always had the choice to figure out how to meet my own needs, and it took me a very long time to decide that. Even if I was a kid. I mean, children don't really seem to have choices all the time, so this is why I say, like, this is not true for everybody. Um, And, yeah, that's why my mental health issues lasted for so long, too, because I was a kid. Um, We rely on other people to guide us when we're kids, but when we're adults and we continue to repeat patterns of our childhood because we don't know any better... Um, It feels like we don't have a choice but to repeat those patterns, but we're adults and we can find and choose to see guidance out there because it is there. It just requires a perspective shift. And sometimes it also requires questioning our culture, our upbringing that tells us that certain lifestyles are normal when they're not. So, um, there's another saying that I like. That pain in the body means that something is not happening that should be happening. So, in this case, it's wise to respond by making that thing happen if possible. For instance, maybe you haven't been moving a certain micro muscle while working at your computer desk during the pandemic. And it's somehow contributing to early signs of sciatica. The quick fix is medicating it, of course, not against that, but physical therapy and making a change in how often I sit should also ideally be part of the solution. And if I say, well, my job makes me sit often, maybe I need to ask the question of myself, the hard, difficult question why do I have this job? Can I find another job that doesn't make me sit as much? So anyway, to me, mind and body are the same thing. Similar to what Johan said about unmet needs, pain in the mind means that something is not happening that should be happening. So when I had anxiety and depression, for instance, my neurotransmitters were misfiring in extremely mundane situations because I was too young to know how to change my external world through the way that I was responding to it. And I mentioned that everything that happened to me as a kid felt like my own personal 9-11, which unbeknownst to me created so many more intensely difficult internal responses. And I didn't know this at the time, but this is a sign of nervous system activation. My fight and flight mode was on nuclear. But the great thing about mind and body being the same thing is that I learned that I could start changing my physiological responses to reverse the process and try to get out of a pattern. And I learned one technique at the height of my desperation um, as a kid when I found a book about social anxiety. I fully expected it to just give me strategies on how to do small talk like a normal person or how to ignore my horrible self-hating thoughts. But surprisingly, it gave me breathing exercises So I was 13 or 14 when I first learned how to breathe deeply through my belly instead of the chest. Um, This is, uh, chest breathing is a very common fight and flight response, um, and it's how most people breathe actually. Um, But breathing through your belly moves you out of that nervous system activation. And of course, breath work didn't fix it right away. This is a thing that happens over time. But I know for sure that the practice that I found in that book was part of the seed of me finding my way out of the dark hole because I was learning to tackle both the physiological responses along with the internal thoughts and, you know, energy that was moving through. So that is that. But what about the integration piece? And that all is in the past, but is it true that the trauma and feelings never really go away? I would have to say, in some ways, yes. Um, I obviously can talk now. And the feelings of, you know, exaggerated anxiety doesn't overcome me, Uh, stings a lot less, doesn't have any power over me. And even though I say I've healed from my experiences and I don't think I can say I suffer chronically from any health diagnosis anymore, everything I went through is still with me. Uh, The darkness is integrated and continuing to integrate. And here's where the ability to observe your own perspective really shines. It really helps because, you know, these hard feelings come back. And sometimes it's like during really happy moments, like being with family or anything that might remind me of my childhood or how much I felt I failed others while being preoccupied with my mental health, Um, remembering the feelings of worthlessness often do come back and it is fairly strong. But today I have learned, because I've done so much studying and work, is that instead of pushing down these feelings and regrets, um, I let it out. I cry alone, usually in the bathtub, so I can go down the drain. Um, I cry these heaving sobs, just like, letting it go. No comfort. Not asking anybody for anything while I'm there. Not running to anyone to save me. It's all just me. And sometimes I don't even know what is coming up. I'm just okay with letting it happen. Um, And why is this powerful? To remember and to let it, you know, move through. Um, and why do I say that it's not overwhelming when actually in the moment when it comes up, it is overwhelming. It's like, why, (laughs) why is this here? Um, this is a lot. It is a lot, but I don't, I guess what I, how I would put it is that I don't let it stay. And it's not like I'm pushing it out either because it's not about, Pushing it away. Um, for, for this particular experience of anxiety and depression, it has been really long for me. Um, but at this point, I can do um, or I can look back and not be angry or not have hate, not have blame for people that I thought didn't understand Um, And much more importantly, I don't have hate or blame for myself or what I might have done to deserve anything I went through because any hate or blame that I did have back then uh, for others was also because I felt that for myself. Um, And I I talk about this a lot in the podcast that we project, we are projectors, (laughs) Anything we're feeling against somebody else is usually something related to something we're not seeing. And this is knowledge that I've developed over many, many years. Um, So it helps me to be without fear when facing that darkness if it comes up. Um, And if I were to go a little bit deeper, I've also learned that there are two ways to cry. I can cry a little bit and stuff it down because maybe I'll get caught up in the shame of I should be over this by now. It's been so many years. But that stuffs the emotion back into my body, back into the physiological body and makes it a part of my identity in an unconscious and subconscious way. And thus it affects the way I move about the world. This way of crying moves me in the direction of old patterns. But the other way to cry is to just truly open up the floodgates and let it flow through. And I know sometimes, like, you hear this from self-improvement or spiritual mental health uh, content. Uh, Just like, let it move through you, let it move through you. What does it mean? Um... And I'll try to describe the last time this happened to me. Just watching whatever pain it is, not becoming the tears or willing them to end, but comforting them, wondering where they came from. It lets the emotion complete its journey through me. And I I would say that it also turns it uh, from shame into something more positive, something more helpful. And most importantly, I don't claim it. It isn't mine. It isn't part of me. And it's not my identity. It just moves through. Um, I learned a lot of, about this concept through meditation. And so this is why I encourage a lot of people to try different meditation techniques. Because healthy detachment is, has been so helpful. So, so helpful. Um, And the other part of this, of not claiming things as part of you, as part of your identity, you also see the pain differently. I actually feel the most compassion for others when I let myself be with old hurts in this way. Because I let myself grieve whatever I wish was different, whoever I wish was different, And I truly understand that the best thing I can do to move forward is to do my best to forgive and express that compassion for others who may still be living in trauma patterns. But, you know, that compassion doesn't stay there forever. (laughs) It's constant work. So that's why it's called doing the work constantly, consistently, and making sure that I don't go back into fight-or-flight mode when I can. Uh, Most of us are always in fight-or-flight mode. Some experience it more intensely than others, and when you're in that mode, you don't have the capacity to be aware of how much pain other people are in, especially if they're not living up to your expectations. And so we don't see that in the moment of experiencing Um, Maybe, like, experiencing uh, being bullied or experiencing somebody being rude. Um, And so that's why it is really important to work with your fight and flight activation. Because healing and reclaiming your power and how you respond is a way of turning your own grief and anger and sadness into... A sort of prayer for the continued healing of everybody. People, situations, family lines. If that's what those people and things wish to do. Um, But you can only control yourself. (laughs) That's another big thing that I've learned. So most of all, just letting it flow through you means unleashing who you really are. Removing all those layers of... Things that kept you down for so long. Because when you are being yourself, taking all of the toxicity away, you are able to say what truly needs to be said out of love and are able to pay the healing forward. So that is all for today. Hoping that was an interesting take Um, but speaking of paying the healing forward, part of why I haven't done a podcast in a while is because I've been going inward a lot, you know, there's a lot of, lot going on right now. Um, and I'm hunkering down and learning some new things. And one of the things that I'm learning that uh, I am now offering is Yoga Nidra. So I'm uploading a few tracks to the Insight Timer app soon. Um, So look out for that. I'll announce it when it's up. Um, But yoga nidra, it's a powerful practice uh, when done live also. So I'm definitely going to keep all of you posted if I get that organized. But um, to explain what yoga nidra is, it's a guided visualization journey that methodically moves somebody into healing brainwave states. And the whole intention of the practice is to help Somebody reformat the subconscious and unconscious mind around a goal that they have. But what I really like about this practice is that one, it's super creative for me to write these journeys, and two, even though I am guiding, the person listening is always in charge. You're always the explorer of your own story. You are exploring this landscape that I'm building, but I'm not creating the story. And you always decide what internal change you're ready for, if any. So I'll be creating some journeys for things like creativity, ancestral healing, and yes, anxiety and depression too. Um, I'm even working with a friend to help overcome fears surrounding intense athletic training, so you really can use this practice as a tool for moving through different kinds of struggles. Um, I'm excited to be offering these, so reach out if you're interested because Nidra is so in line with me and what I'm trying to do with Inner Space Revolution, and this is just the beginning. So thank you always for listening and being around for all of my experimentation and sharing your thoughts. Um, I hope to get more active as I continue to learn and continue to share. So talk to you very soon. Peace.